The subject tonight is the renewed mind in the face of an enemy. The renewed mind in the face of an enemy. We're going to go 14 to uh, the end of the chapter, okay, of chapter 12. Starting at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. And what I want to do tonight is I want to take those words in the 16th verse, haughty and conceited. And the question I want to ask is, why, why, when Paul talks about blessing those who persecute us, and of course he gets that from Jesus, bless those who persecute you. When Paul says, bless those who persecute you, why does he immediately start talking about pride? I would have thought he'd start talking about love or forgiveness. But he doesn't. When he talks about this... this uh, spiritual pressure to not respond in kind when people wrong us in some way, he immediately links it with pride. And that's, I want to I investigate that a little bit. 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Now that's a repetition of this idea of blessing those who persecute. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, in other words, instead of avenging yourself, striking back, to the contrary, if your enemy, this is not just a needy person, this is your enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he or she is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a quote from the Old Testament. What, what is that all about? You'll, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. That's evil done against you. He's still talking about this blessing those who persecute. So, so you, you wrong me in some way, and there's a way that, that something arises in my heart that becomes my undoing. It overcomes me. I lose. Okay, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this whole 12th chapter, starting right back at the beginning, it's one of the most uh, practically hard-hitting chapters in the book of Romans. And and the whole chapter is an unfolding of what it means to not be conformed to the world, but, but having a renewed mind, being transformed in our minds by the Holy Spirit. And it's I think, significant, probably natural, that Paul saves the hardest part of discipleship to the end of the chapter. So there's been all sorts of instructions in there 
But when he comes to the close of this section, while the chapter divisions weren't there, this section of thought, he comes to the most difficult calling of discipleship, the, the thing we find hardest to do. So just in in like verse 13, he's talking about hospitality towards strangers. Certainly necessary, loving in the body of Christ. But he moves from that, hospitality towards strangers is easier than blessing an enemy. That's way harder. And so he comes to this most difficult. This This is, when you come to the end of the chapter, this is advanced discipleship. Here's the path Jesus starts all of us on when he saves us. This is where the discipleship of the Spirit, the call of the Spirit, this is where it always goes. If new life is going to be manifested in Don Horbin, if if there's going to be a renewed mind, like a really transformed life by the Holy Spirit, it's going to come to this demanding point. So we can't, we can't pick and choose the places where the call of Jesus is going to be implemented in our lives. You, you get to advance discipleship. This is where you get your degree in discipleship. The treatment of enemies. It, it boils down to, do you know, right in our church, right in our church family, probably listening to me right now, their husbands and wives, if they obeyed Romans 12, they could save their marriage. Not striking back, not looking for vengeance, not looking for a way to get even, not trying to settle scores, not trying to get ahead. Looking after the blessedness, the happiness of someone else, even if they wrong you. This is where where discipleship goes. And I say the call of Jesus because this is obviously where, where Paul gets this idea. Verse 14 Bless those who persecute you. And then he repeats it. Bless and do not curse them. And the reason Paul chooses this sort of shocking language to frame our behavior is those are the terms Jesus used. Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Hear me here. There are all sorts of Christians who believe in Jesus... There are all sorts of worshipers who profess their love for Jesus. Churches are full of people who say Jesus is their Savior. This part of the book of Romans is people who take Jesus seriously. See the difference? These are people... Bless those who persecute you. These are people who take Jesus seriously. Here are the thoughts I want to try and pull out of this text. One, if we're going to obey Jesus at this point, it's going to demand an intensifying of death to self, taking up our cross, the terms Jesus used. That, that, that is not just a static, flat experience. There are times in following Jesus where self-crucifixion is, is, has to be intensified, has to be taken to a fresh level, a deeper level. It requires a, a, a certain kind of cross-bearing to receive Jesus, 
It requires a certain kind of repentance to take pardon from Jesus. But this is different. This is where I will have to take myself by the scruff of the neck if I'm going to obey Jesus and Paul. 12.14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And it's interesting, isn't it, where there's a positive and a negative side of the verse. Really, that second part, bless and don't curse, the, the second part doesn't say anything new. It's not adding a new idea. But what it does do is explain the, the negative side of obeying the Spirit in this area. I mean, Paul is telling us this obedience isn't just a matter of doing the thing commanded, bless those who persecute you. It's also a matter of not doing something else. And do not, do not curse them. There's, there's a self-denial as well as a command. So nothing is left to chance in this important call to radical discipleship. Paul is telling me, reminding me, Don, there are certain aspects of obedience that are particularly costly, and this is one of them. There's, there are certain kinds of obedience that require a radical turning against ourselves. Because everything, when someone really wrongs you, everything screams at you to curse 14b. And I'm told, in this text, I'm told to expect that natural uprising in my own soul against the leading of the Holy Spirit who's trying to change me. I'm being told that there's going to be something in me that's going to pull in the opposite direction. So, so this kind of obedience isn't the kind you can coast in. Here are some where you can coast. There's all sorts of people who just slog around to church out of habit. You just come. There's no big price tag. No one's persecuting you. You come, Christians go to church, we come, we grab a coffee, we sit, we chat, we sing some songs. Easy, easy peasy. Dig your Bible out, you can coast through that. You want 10, 15 minutes a day, read a psalm, easy. Not this. Immediately when you try to follow Jesus and Paul here, everything in you struggles against it. When you've been wronged, I mean really wronged, and you're called to bless the person who wrongs you, it's not like going to church. It's like turning yourself inside out. So that's, that's the summons here. That's the direction this is going. The call isn't just to tolerate mistreatment from the one you considered a brother or sister. The call isn't merely to ignore it. I'm just going to let it go. The call is to, to bless the one who injures you. Bless the one who slanders you. Pray for the one who wrongs you. To look for some way to make their joy and their happiness deeper than the hurt that you feel at the moment. And, and that kind of obedience, that kind of obedience is like the summons to do a thousand push-ups. Point number two. 
I think you can see how Paul puts this together. It's really genius if you take the time to analyze it. Point number two, the church is to be the training ground for self-forgetfulness, not self-fulfillment. I watch a lot of churches. Well, actually, that's not true. I used to. I don't watch much religion on TV anymore. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying TV religion and I don't mix very well. But I see a lot of churches, very large churches, where everything is, is pumped up and hyped up to the max, and you can't help but get the idea that the reason we're going there is self-fulfillment. I want to be blessed. I want my best life now. Steps to success, or, or whatever it might be. If I read this right, especially 15 and 16, rejoice with those who rejoice, Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. There's that proud thing again. I still want to get to that. Associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. It seems the reason God saves me and forgives me, if he's just going to forgive me, I don't need the church. But if he wants to reprogram me, then I need the body of Christ. We begin to see the wisdom of God in placing us in a body of believers upon our being saved. Because when we're first saved, we we aren't ready to bless our persecutors. We are all naturally turned inward. That's what the fall did to all of us. Paul has already told us this this is the key issue needing transformation by the Holy Spirit. Look at 12.3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, So if all that was required was forgiveness, then the cross alone is sufficient. But if we need to be relationally retrained, renewed, retooled, God's tool for that is the congregation. You will get just enough abuse in a good church that you'll have to learn how to treat enemies. That's not, that's not against God's plan. That is God's plan. He'll put you with a group of people incredibly like yourself. That's the problem. And you'll find that That people do unreasonable things. They do things you don't like. And people go, where's God? That's exactly where God is. How else would you learn to bless those who persecute you? And so he places us in these relationships with other fallen, self-centered people. And we start to grow. If we follow the Spirit. If we obey the Word. We learn... To live not for ourselves. We learn to be trained in self-forgetfulness. In a church like this, there are people who are blessed and rejoicing, even though I myself may be brokenhearted. See? And the call of the Spirit to me is to help them in their rejoicing, rejoice with those who rejoice, even though in my own self there might be very little feeling of joy. 
And there are people in a body like this who are depressed and grieving, desperately needing sympathy and shared tears, even though I, at this moment, might be blessed beyond my ability to contain and full of joy. And you start to see the training process. But it goes deeper. Here we are in this church where God has placed us. And Paul says we're to 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. So, so I'm learning that it's the mark of an unrenewed mind to establish relationships that are catered to my interests, my stature, my delights. That's what, that's what people do when they, 12.3, think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. But to do that is to miss the Holy Spirit's training agenda for my development in the congregational life of the church. It is, it is easy. Church, it is painfully easy to attend church all your life without ever being trained and grown in the image of Christ. I can be haughty, 16b, proud in church. Three. Remember at the beginning I said, I wanted to ask the question, why, when Paul talks about blessing those who persecute, why does he immediately think of conceitedness, haughtiness, pride? What does that have to do with the subject of blessing those who persecute us? That's what I'm coming to now. Point number three, vengeance frequently arises from wounded pride rather than a desire for pure justice. I had never seen this link in the text before. Noticing how the words about not taking repayment for an evil, how they follow hard on the heels of, of the previous verse. When you, when you look at the last part of 16, 17, 18, 19, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Now, repay no one evil for evil. Give no... Th- Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do you see it? Like, never be conceited, repay no one evil for evil. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. How do those two link up? very hard for people like I to be trusted to draw the line between a desire for justice and wounded pride. Pride that says, I, I deserve better treatment than I received from that person. I deserve, you see pride in that? I deserve better treatment than I received from that person. What we would all like to think is, I hear it all the time, Pastor Don, I have no ill will or whatever, but this is just a matter of justice. And it almost never is. (laughs) 
And even if it were, God has not called me and he has not called you to balance the scales of universal justice on this planet. He looks after that. So, so when I strike back, someone wrongs me, really wrongs me, and I strike back in turn, it's not justice that's fueling that, though that's the way I will interpret it. It's pride. Wounded pride. You see it all coming together. You see the wisdom of God. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. And the reason... Not obvious to us when we've been wronged. The reason is we will be tempted to avenge ourselves. And we will tell ourselves that that desire for revenge is motivated by pure justice. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, Don, it's not. It's pride. That's, that's, that's the fall, just rearing its stubborn head against the work of the Spirit. That's what this text means in 12.3. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you are. That's not your calling. Don't avenge. Don't assume a role I have not given you. That kind of pride. I don't know about you. That kind of pride dies hard in all of us. We hate its dying and so God pulls out all the stops. He's shaping us. And right at the point where we feel the most righteous in our pride, he calls us to do what's most humbling. 14. I want you to bless those who persecute you. It's a hard assignment. It's the painful scalpel of divine love. Well, what about evil, Pastor Don? What about sin? Someone has really sinned against me. And everybody goes right to Matthew 18. We want to get, I want to, we're going to process this. What if someone has not just hurt my feelings, but committed real sin against me? Where, where's the holiness of God? Where's justice meted out if it's not going to be from me? Well, no question about it. Evil, evil ought to be punished. And that's the reason for Paul's strong words in verse 19. Do you have that in your notes, verse 19? Read it out loud with me. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So God won't ignore sin. Wrong never goes unpunished. I want to explain that in a minute. Never, never, never goes unpunished. So we err in our vengeance when we take it into our own hands. We err because in our pride we, we can't stand the thought that this wrongdoer is going to get away with it, right? That's what hurts. He wronged me. And the thought that he will get away with it drives us nuts. And the text makes it pretty clear. Sin, all sin, is punished. Let me say that again. Absolutely all sin is punished. Think of the acts of sin committed 
on this planet. Take the 7.8 billion people on this planet and think in thought, word, deed, and omission. Think of how many sins get committed on planet Earth in 24 hours. It's in the trillions, right? It's a pretty radical thing for me to stand up here in front of you and say, not one of those sins. That's in a day. Multiply it by a week. Multiply it by a month. Multiply it by a year. We don't have numbers for that. Pretty radical for me to stand here in front of you and say, not one, not a single one of those sins goes unpunished. Pastor Don, what can you possibly mean by that? Either people repent of their sin and it is punished on the cross of Christ or they don't repent of their sin and they will be judged when Jesus comes again, if not sooner, in God's providence. But no sin, not one single sin, is ignored in God's universe. And we all, we all, when we take vengeance into our hands... It's the sin of unbelief. I do not believe God will deal with that sin. It's the ultimate unbelief, vengeance. There's another problem, and I'm almost done. It's a problem I face, and it's a problem you face, and none of us likes to admit it. I really don't want my enemy forgiven. I like being forgiven. I don't want my enemy forgiven. I want grace for Don Horbin, and I want justice for my enemies. And because Jesus knows that, he told a story, and I'd like to read it to you. Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, a talent could be like a year's work for a laborer. 10,000 talents, you're not paying this back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. The servant, the servant fell on his knees. I did this when I came to Jesus. So did you. The servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And everyone said, praise God. Because in the story, that's you. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, I'm supposed to see myself here now, after just being forgiven, okay, the big debt, Anything you're asked to forgive in your marriage, anything you're asked to forgive will always be smaller than what Christ has already forgiven you in any relationship. And seizing him, he began to choke him right around the neck. Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. And you'd think this idiot 
would have heard his own words. But he doesn't. He's blind. He refused. Went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We'd like it if the story ended there. But the real part of the story is what comes next. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, don't gloss over this. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, parable ends there, and this is Jesus, straight talk now. Not story, straight talk from Jesus. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Point number four. Restoring love, the ultimate desire of a renewed heart in the face of injustice. So 20 and 21, to the contrary. So contrary to what I've been telling you about being proud, taking vengeance into your own hand, assuming a role you don't have, proud in that you forget how much you've been forgiven when you take vengeance on someone else. Contrary to all of that, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil. And it's not talking about pornography or homosexuality or anything else. It's, it's talking about the evil that... I, I want to get even. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To have an opportunity... To do good for the one who wrongs you and not take it is nothing more than a quiet revenge. So Paul is clear. If there's some way, if you can find any way to be a blessing to the one who wrongs you, Paul says, seize it for dear life. Don't let yourself sleep through a chance to walk in the Spirit. Don't miss the greatest opportunity to advance in discipleship. Don't ignore the one way to be more like Jesus than you'll ever get for the rest of your life. Because what, what is Jesus known for? He forgives his enemies, right? While we were enemies, Paul says, Christ died for us. So, Going to church, that's important. Praying is important. Reading your Bible is important. But if you want the one way to be more like Jesus than you will ever be for the rest of your life, find somebody who wrongs you and bless his socks off. <laughs>